0: Remember Capitan Tiago? Of course you remember Capitan Tiago. His party opens Jose Rizal's Noli Metangere, which is required reading, literally, when you're in the Philippines. It's in the law. You can't graduate high school without slogging through the Noli and its sequel. So anyway, Tiago is a rich, rotund, amiable businessman who is, no spoilers, the father of Maria Clara. You've also probably heard that his household serves up a mean Tinola. When we meet him at the start of the book, he's all smiles and sucking up to the Spaniards and Oh, here's the son of my good friend, newly arrived from Spain, about to marry my daughter. But by the end of the story, he's a shadow of his former self, wasted away by personal tragedy. To cope, he turns to opium, that ancient, mysterious narcotic that was a cornerstone of Capitan Chago's fortune. Basically, he was getting high on his own supply. By the time the events of El Filibusterismo roll around, Capitan Chago, once the leading light of the community, was now an opium addict. Welcome to the Colonial Department, the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In this episode, we zero in on opium, the drug that changed the course of 19th century history. Did it do the same for the Philippines? This is Season 3, Episode 7, God's Own Medicine, Part 1. Even before the tragedy of Capitan Chago, my first exposure to opium dens was in the old Adventures of Tintin comic called The Blue Lotus. There, the boy reporter and his little white dog are hot on the trail of a drug smuggling ring that's been operating in Egypt, India, and Shanghai. Their chase leads them to a high-class Shanghai opium den called the Blue Lotus. Chloroform. Look at this. Blue Lotus. It's Mr. Wang's handwriting. They've taken him to the Blue Lotus. In the third to the last page of the comic book, Creator R.J. drew a wide panel depiction of the inside of an opium den. It's a mad, psychedelic illustration, oranges and blues festooned with lanterns and classical Chinese paintings and dragon symbols snaking through the walls. The colorful surroundings are in stark contrast to the clientele, who are all draped dully across low couches, holding up long red pipes that they hold up above the spirit lamps, ready to suck in the sweet vapors. So what is opium? It is, in the words of Thomas de Quincey, a celestial drug. Here he wrote, Here was a panacea, a pharmacon nepenthes for all human woes. Here was the secret of happiness about which the philosophers had disputed for so many ages, at once discovered. Its origins are lost in the mists of history. 5,000 years ago, the Sumerians grew it and called it the Joy Plant. And millennia later, the Greek poet Homer sang its praises. In the age of Sale, English pharmacologists turned it into a tincture called laudanum and marketed it as medicine. In fact, that's what some doctors in the 1700s called opium itself, God's own medicine. By the mid-18th century, the practice of smoking God's own medicine out of a pipe was already widespread throughout the world. But this isn't like tobacco or marijuana. Sure, opium comes out of a plant, but there's no processed leaves to light up. Instead, a blackish gum collected from the poppy sap is served to the smoker, who spears a little pea-sized lump with a long thin needle. He puts the gum over the flame of the spirit lamp until it swells up and turns into a gooey gold. The gum could be stretched out like mozzarella to cook it better, before ultimately it's rolled back into a P shape and stuffed into the hole of the pipe. The smoker puts the bowl over the flame to give it one last cook, the opium tar bubbling as he then takes a deep drag to heaven. What is the experience like? Nick Toshis, who traveled to many countries to search for the last opium smokers in the world, wrote about his quest in the September 2000 issue of Vanity Fair. Somewhere in northern Thailand, he takes a pull from fine aged opium and poetically describes the ecstasy of that big smoke. I am a swirl, bird, soul and breeze, amid the cool high mountain trees of the myriad meaning knowledge of that thing, savior and destroyer within. Never has an afternoon passed in such serenity. To be here now, If one afternoon smoke can inspire such poetry, you can imagine how much demand opium had at the height of its popularity. With that demand came the opportunity to make big money. Historian Benito Legarda writes that if the age of sale was defined by the silk for silver trade between Manila and Acapulco, the British-Chinese tea and opium exchange would dominate the 19th century. Opium, which is not native to the Philippines, could have snuck in via Chinese traders looking for a little sideline in Manila, or via Dutch traders who docked in Mindanao. It first appeared in Philippine records early on in the colonial period. In 1631, a Spanish writer said that the Moros of Mindanao used opium to prepare for battle. Ten years later, an Augustinian friar wrote of a man who was arrested, interrogated, and tortured, but was immune to the tender loving care of the Spanish police because he was hopped up on opium. In 1814, the use of opium had become widespread enough throughout the archipelago that Governor General José de Gardóqui put the hammer down on the narcotic. Importing it became illegal, and smugglers would be punished with six years in the slammer even those who smoked it would be punished with two weeks imprisonment and up to four years if you were caught three times. Then only a few years later, a reversal or or at least a slight shift in official direction. The galleon trade was at its sunset and the Spanish were looking enviously at their imperial rivals from across the pond, watching as British trading ships made a killing bringing in opium into China. Economic reformers tried to placate the moralists by saying that, hey, smoking opium wasn't any worse than smoking tobacco or drinking alcohol, right? Even the leading Chinese scholar in Spain at the time, Sinibaldo de Mas, said that from his experience, opium smokers worked as hard, if not harder, than their counterparts who didn't smoke. Besides, one commission argued, It was unwise to persecute the large Chinese population in the Philippines just for smoking opium. It is also impossible to hunt down the smugglers who could disembark in any one of the 7,000 islands in the Philippines. So why not instead legalize the trade and take a hefty cut? In 1844, the Spanish colonial government did just that. They waded into the trade and set up their own opium monopoly. Opium was just one of the many mind-altering substances that were being turned into global commodities by the beginning of the modern age. Look, coffee and tea have caffeine as their active ingredient, and these were also grown and traded and ingested from the 1500s onwards. But opium is an interesting case in that we have two major conflicts named after it. As far as I know, there's been no tea war or cigarette war or wine war, but there have been two opium wars in China. And as historian Frank de argues, these wars contributed to the myth that Imperial China ultimately collapsed because much of the population had turned into opium addicts as the British flooded the country with a drug. In reality, argued de opium smoking was part of Chinese culture, its pain-killing properties ritualized into toots from the pipe. In his words, Opium was a culturally privileged intoxicant generally smoked in moderate amounts for recreational and medical reasons without any loss of control. Nevertheless, as we have seen from the Philippine records, moral condemnation of opium use also has deep and long-standing roots. And because opium smoking was so closely associated with China, policies about opium in the Philippines also took on a racial tinge. even if it was granted a government monopoly, make no mistake, as a French doctor found out in his visits to the Philippines, opium was still a public vice. You could not enter a smokehouse, you could not lie down and light up and take a drag, but in the cunning two-facedness of the government's drug policies, they made an exception for the Chinese. This was how the opium monopoly worked. In locales with a big enough Chinese population, the government auctioned off three-year licenses. Whoever bought the license had the exclusive rights to import and store opium and to set up as many smokehouses as needed to fulfill the demand of the local Chinese population. For Chinese immigrants who often had to perform manual labor, a little hit of opium became a brief respite for their hard lives. As a result, opium dens mushroomed. In 1860, a German traveler reported that there were 478 opium dens that were licensed by the government all throughout the country. In Cagayan and Isabella alone, there were 40 smokehouses between the two provinces, which had a sizable Chinese population working in the tobacco farms. The opium monopoly produced a steady, reliable stream of income for the Spanish government that helped tide them over after the collapse of the galleon trade. From 1859 to 1894, the government cut from the trade ballooned by a whopping 1,258 percent. The contractors also made a killing. Historians Juan Gamella and Eliza Martin estimate that in the 1890s, the holder of the Manila license for opium could have earned hefty profits of 50,000 pesos a considerable sum at the time. Here's another thing about the opium monopoly. Filipinos, mestizos and Spaniards couldn't smoke it, but they could definitely make money out of it. Anyone could buy an opium license. So you can imagine competition for one was very fierce. Capitan Chago of the Nolly and Fili was obviously able to get one, and it helped turn the ambitious Indio into the debonair socialite that we see at the start of Rizal's novels. Opium would also become Capitan Chagos' downfall. You see, the two-faced policy of the monopoly enabled the Spanish government to do two things. They could profit massively from it, yes, but they could also simultaneously denounce it as a vice. By moting it up, barring it from the vast majority of the population, and targeting it at Chinese communities who lived in the fringes of society, they could pass opium addiction as an isolated criminal problem. That was the 19th century narcotics playbook as it played out in the Philippines. Demonize the opium addicts while you're pocketing their money. And so we go back to Capitan Chago. At the end of his life, he becomes addicted to opium. He loses his lofty standing in society and becomes a gaunt, skeletal figure hanging out in the streets of Santo Cristo. He's lost everything, his wealth, his status, his friends, his own daughter. No one remembers who he is anymore, and to precipitate his own forgetting, he hoists himself up by a cane at night and hobbles down to an opium den. At the end of the book, it's opium addiction that does him in. But our story of opium in the Philippines doesn't end there. What happened to the opium dens and opium farms during the upheavals of the Philippine Revolution and the American invasion? And how did opium finally disappear from our shores? Tune in to God's Own Medicine Part 2, coming next in the Colonial Department. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Colonial Department. References used in this episode are written on the show notes, but I'd also like to express my thanks to my main sources. On the Opium Monopoly, I consulted Eliza Martin and Juan Gamelias Las Rentas de Anfion, El Monopólio Español del Opio en Filipinas, y su rechazo por la Administración Norteamericana as well as Ricardo M. Zarcos' A Short History of Narcotic Drug Addiction in the Philippines, 1521-1959. Perspective on opium's role in history came from Frank de Cotter's 2003 lecture entitled Patient Zero, China and the Myth of the Opium Plague. Quotes from sources were read by Anya Ong. The Colonial Department was written and produced by Leo Mongubat. Follow us on Instagram at The Colonial Department.